KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio in depth. I'm Matt Leon. A recent memo from the General Counsel of the National Labor Relations Board could fundamentally change forever the world of college athletics. And this is a world which has already seen a lot of change in recent months as the dam has burst on athletes being able to be compensated for their name, image, and likeness. To talk about what this memo says, what it means, and what we could see going forward, we caught up with our go-to voice for all things involving the world of college athletics, Dr. Karen Weaver, adjunct assistant professor and academic director at the University of Pennsylvania. Give a listen. So to start, this memo issued recently by the National Labor Relations Board General Counsel, just kind of explain to us what it said. So this is a memo that came from the General Counsel, so it did not come from the whole board. And I think it's important to note that this is her opinion. She was recently confirmed by the Senate. She is a Biden appointee. Uh, she is uh, taking a different tack than the person in this position in the Trump administration took. But what she's doing is she's saying all the way back in 2014, when the Northwestern football players tried to unionize and they were uh, rebuffed at the national level, she's saying, I'm revisiting that and I'm agreeing that these athletes that we call student athletes have been inappropriately characterized as not employees. I'm saying that they can be employees and I am looking for plaintiffs to try to help me test this theory. So we are at this point as we're talking, we're just kind of waiting to see what what comes to the surface here as far as plaintiffs? Yeah, so there are still people in college sports. Uh, yesterday, Jim Phillips from the ACC, the commissioner, came out and said, I, I don't believe this is correct. I think uh, athletes are student athletes. And there's going to be a lot of denial about this. So it's going to be important that some group of athletes step forward and say, okay, we want to be the ones who will lead the charge. And it might not just need to be one group. It could be multiple small groups who say, we want to organize around our health and safety issues in our workplace. We want to organize around how our time is monopolized by, by many of these um, practices and, and, and community obligations and strength practices and, and all kinds of different activities where they basically have no other life than just to go to class. I think they want some control over their environment. They want some control over, you know, COVID as it did for so many things brought out immense challenges and inconsistencies in the health and safety practices in, in practices of games. So I think there's a lot to be had here. And it's just a matter of uh, what group of students want to take, take charge of it and run with it. Am I correct that this memo, this concept, it would only deal with private schools, not state schools because state schools would need uh, a legislature or or some kind of gov uh to to go that direction so that's that was a school of thought in the uh the northwestern uh, labor case but in this case she was very explicit she said yes i understand that this will only apply in the initial take to to private schools however each of these schools is a member of a conference that is a private entity and so every school who sits in that conference, whether they're public or private, will be subjected to this ruling because I believe, this is the general counsel, I believe that they are a private entity and therefore subject to this rule. You mentioned how <clears throat> this memo comes courtesy of the general counsel, not the full board. Kind of dig into why that's important. 
Well, she carries a lot of weight. Jennifer Abruzzo carries an awful lot of weight in this scenario. I would say that from folks that I've talked to, 60 to 70% of her viewpoint carries forth. So not 100%, but she sets the tone. And she sets the tone because she was confirmed by the Senate. Uh, She made it very clear that she was going to go after what she thought were bad actors in the employment workplace. And she clearly views the NCAA as a bad actor. She was only confirmed like four months ago. So this is relatively early in her in her term. When we talk about the NCAA, you've got this memo, you've got that Supreme Court case that said they can't limit educational benefits. You know, we had the recent dam bursting on name image likeness. Uh, I feel like every few months there is something that takes more and more power from the NCAA. And it really feels like everything's running in one direction right now. I think that's right. And I don't see it turning around. I think the NCAA was allowed either through assumption or lack of uh, collective action to, to basically dictate the terms and conditions in which everybody operated. And while it gave a lot of um, comfort to compliance officers and coaches, they knew exactly what to expect and they could pretty much figure out what rule they were breaking or not breaking. What the Supreme Court said, and, and, and it was very clear about it, is that that is collusion. That is not giving the marketplace a chance to operate. So we want you to devolve your regulations down to the conferences, let the conferences decide how they want to act. And you can hear it in some of the offhanded comments that athletic directors and others make that they want to defer to some other organization so they don't have to make the call. And this is becoming increasingly challenging for a group of folks who were very much used to just, you know, following along and doing what the organization told them to do. Do you see the NCAA trying to get ahead of this at all? Because one of the things with all the these things we talk about every few months, the NCAA is woefully reactive instead of looking at which way the wind's blowing and kind of putting a flag in the ground and trying to come up with something that keeps them relevant, but kind of understands where we are in a moment in society. Uh, do, do you expect the possibility of anything like that? So I think the, the tea leaves can be read this way. Uh, they have put forth a, a mandate to have a constitutional convention in January. It's the first one since 1988. And they basically put a working group together that says, okay, each of your divisions, division one, two, and three, you tell us what role you want us to play and what you want us to enforce and not enforce. That is, that is a stunning decision by the NCAA, and it tells you everything you need to know about uh, the way they're looking at this. Is like, you tell us where you want us involved, and then we'll make sure it's okay with the lawyers. But I, I see very, very different paths for, of course, parts of Division One going one way, parts of Division One going another way, all dependent on money, and Division Two and Three having more autonomy than they've had before. When you talk about Division One going, you know, kind of splitting, are we talking like the Power Five mm-hmm. and then everybody else? I'm a real big believer. I mean, they've talked about this for 30 years, but that we're going to eventually evolve into super conferences. We're going to have four super conferences of 16 teams. That's exactly the move the SEC was making when they, they uh, agreed to add Texas and Oklahoma. They're the first super conference. Now everything else is about reconfiguring to get to that because four makes sense. 
It's, it's easy in terms of creating a football playoff out of, out of four. Doesn't matter if it makes, doesn't make geographical sense. Doesn't matter if it doesn't make, you know, time of the year sense. It's what works for football, which is the huge money driver. So the schools that are outside of those 64, of which there are at least another 64, are really going to be left stra- scrambling for revenue and for uh, meeting in, the, in all of this. And that's what the NCAA is, is asking them to think about. Okay, if you're, if you're not in the revenue group, how much do you want to put into rules uh, enforcement? Are you going to have the budget to be able to support a rules enforcement model? Or are you going to be able to be comfortable with a more uh, open-ended uh, compliance model? You and I talk in five years the college athletics landscape is going to be unrecognizable from what we've known the last 40. Am I crazy? Mm-hmm. Uh, no, you're not crazy at all, Matt. You know, you kind of talk about the super conferences. What do you think past that would be some of these ripple effects for these other, you know, you talk about more aut- autonomy in two and three, the rest of division one kind of scrambling. Could we see a wave of schools decide football's not worth it? Like, do you think, can we not even kind of get our head around what the ripple effects could be of this? I think there's a lot of head in the sand kind of uh, uh, reaction right now. I think people will, for example, if you're a school that depends a lot on guarantee games, you're going to assume that you're always going to have those guarantee games, that you've got a contract signed out through 2027 that'll give you three quarters of a million dollars. Because a number of those non-64 teams build their budgets around guarantee games. There's a very strong possibility that those that group of 64 schools that are in the in the super conferences may say, you know what, we're not revenue sharing with anybody else but ourselves. And so that really leaves the other schools to decide how are we going to pay for athletics? And we know that the media marketplace is changing fast. Um, A lot of things are moving to streaming. There's less money to be had that's guaranteed in streaming versus linear and broadcast television. So uh, it is a real moment for each school to start thinking. I don't think they're doing this yet but to start thinking about what does the future hold and what can we really afford to do out of our own pocket. So that's the rest of Division One. You talk about more autonomy in Division Two and Three. Uh, overall, would that be a good thing or is it going to be a case-by-case basis? I, th- I think for D- Division Two and Three, we haven't seen a whole lot of problems with it. I, I think if I were to point at anything, I think there's sometimes a lack of understanding by non-athletics department personnel, senior campus leaders as to how athletics actually works. And so they end up making inadvertent mistakes like in Division Three, giving them more, giving the athletes more merit aid than they give the rest of the students, which you're not allowed to do, or in Division Two, miscalculating the scholarship amounts. So those kinds of things will still happen. So those organizations will expect that there'll be some sort of annual reports, checks and balances. They're comfortable with that. They're also very, very concerned that they don't lose any of the monies that their divisions currently get from March Madness. And of course, March Madness would still, we think, align itself with the entire NCAA organization. But it is also possible that those four super conferences could decide we're going to run our own basketball tournament. And so what does that mean for the rest of college sports? I don't know. No, that's fascinating because I was kind of putting that through my head as you were talking about that. I'm like, the focus is on football for obvious reasons. But if we get to that point where these power four, if it eventually, which it seems like it will become that, everything's different. So in one of my classes this weekend, we were talking about this very thing. So the NCAA Division II 
gets a total of $53.3 million from March Madness. Of that $53 million, 60%, so roughly $28, $29 million goes to running their championships. The remaining amount goes back to the Division II conferences. Division Three does the same thing, only they have $35.2 million, I think it is. So we're not talking, like compared to Division One, we're not talking about, you know, billions of dollars here, but it's enough to provide championship opportunities for the lower divisions. Those are significant. It's the major reason why so many schools joined the NCAA was the opportunity to play for a national championship. We've talked about a lot of this kind of looking at it through the prism that things get better for the student athletes, organize more power. Are there unforeseen possible negatives, things that we're not thinking about that you've kind of run through that could, uh, you know, unforeseen circumstances that could kind of rear their ugly heads? Well, uh, my concern has always been, and it's, but it's been a trend in the last 10 years, is that athletes are getting more and more isolated from the rest of the campus. They really don't have a classic college student experience at all. And so if they have these kind of workplace protections, you know, if you walk around campus and, you know, somebody will say, hey, can I take your picture? Oh, the contract doesn't allow that. I mean, those kinds of informal interactions are what, what we're losing when the athletes don't, aren't able to be a part of student government or, you know, volunteer for other activities. And so we're in this trend of further isolating athletes. I think this will also accelerate that because they'll have to think about what's in their, in their agreements, and in their, they won't be thinking about what's life like as a daily student on campus. Let's zone in on football, and let's assume that we do see, as you say, those four super conferences. Could we see this continue to play forward with regards to the NFL? Because it seems to me, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, you're, you're organizing at the college level, and all of a sudden now you're getting drafted. You have no choice in where you go. It seems to me that this change could lead to changes up that ladder. I, I would say the ladder goes in reverse. I think it would lead to change to high schools uh, because we're already seeing some states that failed to implement any legislation that, that addressed high school athletes getting involved in name, image, likenesses. And so there's no reason why a good uh, high school coach or, or administrator wouldn't look to the colleges and saying, well, that's the way they do it. So perhaps this is the way we should do it. There's a lot of that as you look down the pecking order. So I, I would argue in the sport of football that the NFL sort of sets the standard because that's where everybody aspires to be. And then college athletics and then high school athletics. So I think there, there's actually the chance for significant change at the high school level. Uh, and, and that will be very expensive. There's no doubt about it because so many of these high school programs are, are run on very small budgets. And we talked off the top about the memo and how basically she's kind of inviting in this memo, you know, plaintiffs. How long do you think till we see a viable plaintiff? Do you think that's something as we're talking mid-October? Could we see something by the end of the calendar year? You talk about the Constitutional Convention they want to have in January 2022. Do you think we will have things in the pipeline by then? Matt, there are already uh, union labor uh, law firms, union side labor law firms that are actively seeking plaintiffs right now because it's good good for their business. Mm -hmm. Organized labor seems to be having a moment in this country, and this would be (laughs) 
quite a boon to what we're seeing in high profile strikes and stuff like that. Uh, after, you know, it feels like three, four decades of being constantly kind of pushed to the side, organized labor is flexing its muscles these days. I think so. And I think it goes back to COVID and how people want to see their workplaces and, and how safe they want to feel and valued they want to feel. And sometimes those, that, that valuation translates into wages and benefits. And in, in the athlete's case, it could start with something as simple as having a voice in the health and safety protocols. There's a lot of concern about concussion management and uh, whether athletes are taken care of over a lifetime or just for a couple of years while they're playing. So they'll want to have discussions about this. Will all of this add more expense to the budgets? Probably will involve more deliberative thinking by administrators. Definitely. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.